before we begin, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Father, I am grateful. Um, I'm grateful that you have mercy on us, that you love us when, well, means we would not be lovable, but you are the one who draws us to you. Thank you for what you prepared in my heart, Father. Even if no one gets anything, I have been richly blessed by it because I needed to hear this, Lord. And I pray that your word goes forth, that you get all the glory, that we understand you more and fall deeper in love with you. We trust you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's start with, we're going to start in our... Continuing in 2 Corinthians, we covered verses 1 to 4 last week, so we're going to move on to verses 5 through 8. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. As I've shared before when we've gone through this, Second Corinthians, Paul is showing his pastoral heart, his care, his love, his concern for the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians, he came on pretty strong, basically said some things about what they needed to do, but also said a little bit more about the structure of the church. Here, he's talking on a much more personal level with them and letting them know, hey, this is what really the body's about. And he's letting them know not to, not to contradict what he said in 1 Corinthians, but actually to make it complete. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you talk, it talks about the famous love chapter. This is an example in 2 Corinthians where God's affirming through Paul what love looks like. Okay? And so love is always restorative. Love is always restorative. And so Paul's saying, hey, there's a guy here, and we think the guy that he's talking about, this man is such a man, is the same one in 1 Corinthians, the man who is sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, and at that time, Paul said to him, you've got to put him out. If he's not repentant, you put him out. Okay? What's changed since that time is, it's very likely, and actually that's what we believe, is that the guy repented. The guy admitted that what he did was wrong, and he cast himself on the mercy of the church. Some of them, though, may have felt, well, you did wrong. We're going to put your arm's length. You're out of here. And Paul's saying, no, if he's truly repentant, you need to welcome him back. So, they got correct. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So, Yes, the rebuking part's important, but the restoring part is just as important. And that's what Paul's addressing, is how do I restore them back to you? So look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So Paul's admonishing, but also encouraging the church. The right heart attitude is always seeking to reconcile. To be forgiven easily, okay, and we're going to talk a little bit more. I'm going to talk about the difference of forgiveness and reconciliation. But to forgive easily, but with an open heart, ready for reconciliation. 
especially for the individual who is truly repentant. So, Morgan says this well, if discipline is largely lacking in the church of today, so also is the grace of forgiving and comforting those who have done wrong and are truly repentant. How often, alas, souls have been indeed swallowed up with overmuch sorrow because of the harshness and suspicion of Christians toward them in view of some wrong which they have done. Love never slights holiness, but holiness never slays love. So you have both. need to be holy. And that's why it's important to get real clear understanding whether that gentleman was repentant. So Paul, let me just I'll come back to that. But a little further, he says, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. It's something we understand. When somebody is downcast, when they're truly repentant and brokenhearted with what they did, God calls us to come alongside them, to encourage them, to support them. Not to lessen God's work in them, that downcastness, that repentance, that brokenness is necessary. But you don't want them to be so crushed of spirit that they feel that they're useless and can't do anything, which is not true. Just as we sang, these are holy hands. When they're repentant, they're humble, God draws near, God will work through them. And God can work through us. That's always the intent of, of the work of God, and that's the intent of the Holy Spirit and reconciliation. Hodge says, when the offender is made to feel that while his sin is punished, he himself is loved, and that the end aimed at is not his suffering, but his good, he is more likely to be brought to repentance. So the idea of hate the sin, but love the sinner, it means really coming alongside, not to condemn, to rebuke in the right spirit, but always with the idea of correction. The intent of rebuke is never to condemn. It's always a sense, how do I redeem them? How do I have them come back into fellowship with Christ? To be obedient to what the Word says. So, I'm going to talk a little bit more about forgiveness and reconciliation. Because there are two aspects. God calls each of us to forgive freely, easily. Okay? And what that means is not to hold it against them. Okay? So, it really is something that Christ does. It's really not contingent on the other person. Forgiveness is because of my relationship with Christ. So I'm called to forgive you whatever offense that you did. That means it has to be sincerely. It means canceling that debt that they owe to me personally. It may mean repenting of sinful anger and refusing to harbor bitterness against the person who has sinned against you. It's a promise that you make to let go of the personal aspect of the offense and the refusal on your part to obsess over it. So if we're obsessing over an infraction against us, who's done that? I have. If we're obsessing about that, that's really a sign of our unforgiveness in our heart. God has forgiven our sins. He doesn't obsess about our sins. And He's calling us to do the same. Not to obsess against the sin of others. Okay? And that means we have to let it go. Okay? Now that's not the same that when we do that, that automatically everything is hunky-dory and there's no problem. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, because of my relationship with God is so important, I need to forgive within me. I need to let it go. I need to let the offense go. Just like that king who released that um, one of his subjects who owed him 10,000 talents. When you look at a talent, it's 70 pounds of gold, and you look at the price of gold nowadays, it's billions of dollars. Actually, that would be to a trillion. Crazy amount of money. Okay? Crazy amount of money. Unpayable debt, basically. Okay? And so the point is, that's how God has forgiven us. We have a unpayable debt to God. We cannot pay Him back for what He's done for us. And because He's done it for us, we have that. They can't pay us back. We shouldn't expect that because we can't pay back. So that's part of that forgiveness. Now, 
The other part of forgiveness, remember, is it doesn't mean that you necessarily release them from the consequences of their action. Okay? So if they did something that was criminal, they may have to suffer the consequence of that. If they did something that's subject to church discipline, they may still have to go through that process. Okay? If there's somebody in a position of authority and they do that, they may have to step down from that. They may have to be, they'll have to be under church discipline. Those are natural consequences that forgiveness is about a, my heart attitude, not about the consequences. So, but what we're doing, if you forgive someone, when you're pursuing that discipline, okay, and that justice, it's not vindictive nor vengeful. Even that action of discipline is done from a heart of love. The love of Christ. Loving them and loving others. So when somebody does an infraction, this is a hard part. I'll share an example. I remember when I was in university, you know, I wasn't married, didn't have any kids. But we got in this kind of discussion. You talk about crazy things. But I don't know how it came up. But it's late at night and they were wondering about one of the um, girls was concerned of going out in the dark, one of the my um, colleagues, and she was concerned about going out in the dark and that she might get attacked and might get raped. And then we got into the whole conversation. I remember declaring to her, I said, well, if my daughter got raped, again, no children, not married, but if my daughter got raped, as a hypothetical, I'd kill the guy. That's how I felt. I would kill him. Okay? Because that would be nothing that, you know, I would tolerate. That was obviously before Christ. That's the flesh. The flesh wants that vengeance. My rights justified. I want to get my recompense. I want my pound of flesh for the consequence. That's what the flesh wants. That's not of the Spirit. Okay? Now, the Spirit says, I'm to forgive them. That means, it doesn't mean that I don't testify. It doesn't mean I'm not used as a material witness. But it, it means that I forgive my heart. My attitude is not out of spite or bitterness. And it may mean, well, it will mean, to pray for them. Pray in front of that individual. And it may mean, once they're in prison, to visit them. To show them there's another way in Christ Jesus. What a testimony of the love of Christ if you can do that forgiveness of that person and show love. So, they still suffer the consequences of action. Okay? But your intent is always to restore them in a relationship with Christ. And using that as an idea to see hey, this was bad, but God can make it a good. Okay? Just like what Joseph did with his brothers. His intent, you know, he was in a position of authority where he could have smite, smote them. Right? His intent to do the whole thing over and over again was, have they changed? Has God changed their heart? Okay? And you got to see that with Judah. He goes, look, don't take Benjamin. Take me instead. When before, they were like, throw him away, get rid of him. Take me instead. I'm going to lay my life down for my brother on that. Okay? And to show the heart that Judah had and the other brothers did where they showed that they were changed. Okay? They understood. And then he testified. And he got to see them. And he, he broke down. He cried. He wept. So that's the idea. Is that heart is a, is a heart that's grieved by sin. Grieved by harm. Grieved by these things. Not angry and vengeful. You can be angry that injustice is being done. God gives us that anger. Okay? But then, again, the intent is to bring people into holiness and to bring in people into righteousness. So, um, I want to talk a little bit more about now, about reconciliation. So, you've forgiven that person, okay? That's what you do. That's on you. Completely on you. It's not even contingent on that person. Okay? If Will does something wrong to me, I don't need him to for, I don't need him to do anything for me to forgive him. Reconciliation is a different thing. Reconciliation requires two parties. Both. Me and the individual. So for reconciliation to occur, it needs to be something where you get to see that the offending party has repented of sin, promises to continue in repentance, and, as in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, that there's a life changed by it. So for, you know, offenses, sometimes people don't know that they've done an offense, okay? And they may not have seen something wrong. So that's misunderstanding like we've talked about earlier. 
But if there's true offense that's been done and it's pretty evident, then the repentant, the party that sinned, has to be repentant. Okay? So, reconciliation means you're willing to accept them as an offending, the offending party as a brother or sister in Christ. Okay? So the part on us, it means that, you're, that we're open to a growing in our trust of that person over time as they continue to walk faithfully in Christ. But it doesn't necessarily mean, especially at the beginning, that you receive them as a close companion or that they should be restored to their former relationship with you. Okay? Christian reconciliation does not immediately imply that all trust is restored. Okay? But it means that they're still a brother in Christ and that you're open to that as God leads you. But there may be time. There needs proof and evidence that there's been a real change. So, the challenge we have is sometimes when the sinning party only seems to repent. Okay? They'll claim to repent. They may weep and confess their sins, but really, it's only worldly sorrow. We'll talk a little bit more of that when we get to chapter 7. They only care about the consequences of their action. That they lost out. Because they were caught, things don't go their way. But there really isn't a change in their heart. So we have to be on guard to know, is that showing that they've repented that's a, grief, a, a, a sin against God? Or is it something where they're concerned about the consequences? They may change even for a short time, but then they soon return to the pattern of sin. They may hide their sin. That's one of the reasons why we need to, by the way, why we need to wait and give it time. You know, it seems to be a change, but it seems to be, oh yeah, I'm saved, and I wasn't saved then. And then you see something, it looks like some growth, something spreads to the ground, but it's thorny or rocky soil. It's not something that bears a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. You need to wait. It takes time. It takes time to see a harvest. It takes time to see the fruits. They may hide their sin and may make a display of outwardly righteous behavior, but the pattern of sin remains. They may not seek accountability, or they may manipulate the people who are supposed to be holding them accountable. Look at 2 Timothy 3.5. talks about those people. They have a form of godliness, but denying its power. Okay? And what does Paul tell Timothy? From such people, turn away. Don't even go near them. So, what's the characteristic of an unrepentant offender? That's a person um, who can resort to lines of manipulation such as, well, I guess uh, you can't find in yourself to be forgiving. Some Christian, you are. I thought Christians believed in love and compassion. So when they resort to those things to make you feel guilty, to make you feel bad, that's not somebody who's grieved by their own sin. So, Proverbs 28:13, "He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy." So, the challenge is to getting a sense, has that person forsaken the sin? That's something you're going to have to take some time to see. Because we're going to examine fruits. Look at Matthew 7, 16. You will know them by their fruits. That's what Jesus said. He said, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, what are some of the seven signs of genuine repentance. Number one, that individual accepts full responsibility for his or her actions. They're not saying things like, uh, since you think I've done something wrong, um, I'm sorry I said something that might have offended you. If I've given offense, all those things. If I give an offense, or I'm sorry you took it that way, but those are not signs of real repentance. They don't have a defensive attitude about being in the wrong. Ah, oh, but because uh, 
I, you know, I tried to, and I didn't understand, and it was a mistake, and uh, I'll do better next time. They don't try to dismiss or downplay what their hurtful behavior. I was the one time, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. You're making such a big deal about it. You're making a capital offense. Come on. Let it go. Move on. They don't continue in the hurtful behavior or anything with it. We talked about that, that they've, they've forsaken their sin. Number five, they, they don't resent doubts about their sincerity or the need to demonstrate sincerity, especially in those with repeated offenses. So guys who've been in habitual sexual sin, sometimes their spouse may want them to check in all the time, to know exactly where they are at every time. Don't you trust me? Well, yeah, no, no, I don't trust you. Your behavior shows you've not been trustworthy, so how can I trust you? Okay? So there's nothing to indicate that trust. When I trust the earth, there's been years of, of deceit, of lack of trust. How do you expect? One month of trust suddenly makes up for ten years of deceit? That's what the sinner thinks. That's what we think. Oh, well, I'm good now. Look at me. Look at past month. I'm good. Yeah, not so much. It's going to take time. Long time. And you should expect at least the amount of time as long as the infraction was. May not be, but you should go in with a mindset it shouldn't be less. If it is, that's all bonus. <laughs> it's all bonus. <laughs> well, that individual who's repentant will welcome accountability. Praise it wants it, knows that they're weak and vulnerable, asks for it, and they will make restitution when it's necessary. Not always. That's the term of men sometimes, but sometimes there's things you can do. John Scott says, if we can restore to full and intimate fellowship with ourselves a thinning and unrepentant brother, we reveal not the depth of our love, but its shallowness. For we are doing what is not for His highest good. Forgiveness which bypasses the need for repentance issues not from love, but from sentimentality. Too many people go, oh yeah, they're forgiven. And that's what happens between churches. They go through and it makes a big, no, no big deal about it. Oh, it's no big deal. I forgive you, brother. That's not love. That's sentimentality. That's that easy grace that says everything's forgiven, it's no problem. There's no consequence. You can just move on and live life in you and you're, you're free in Christ. That's not the walk that God has called. And that's the challenge sometimes. And you'll see that because often the unrepentant person will not come back. They'll leave. They'll go somewhere else and they'll just do it and then pretend that everything's okay. And what happens, you build up this whole baggage of unrepentant sin. We all have that. Those of us who've gone through pure life, we carry that and went in. And we have to go forward. That's why many times we alter, and we still may have to, because God brings to mind the sin that we did. To repent first to God, and then as necessary to make restitution. So, what do you do with somebody who's clearly unrepentant? Psalm 1.1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits or good morals. So when you have somebody who's unrepentant, if they profess that relationship through Christ, you may have to, just like Paul admonish them in 1 Corinthians to put them out. We've had to do that here. It was not easy. It was painful. We were grieved, but we've had to do that. And it was hard. And I don't know an easy way about it because I have very few churches I know do that. The mass majority just like let it slide. They may just demote them from a position, take them off the worship team or whatever ministry that they're involved in, but not do anything. I'm not implying that worship team people are the ones who are 
committing those offenses. Okay? But I'm saying they, they, they will just make it a, like, no big deal. They'll just kind of sweep it on the rug and let it slide by. That's not what the church is about. The church is about being real, being authentic. Does that mean that each of us is without sin? No. No. We sin every day. Now, we need to restore. We need to repent. And that's why we we're called to repent every day. First to God. Not just sins of our actions, but especially for sins of our thoughts. That's the challenge for me, is my thought life. Like, wow. You do not want to be in my head. It's not a pretty sight. Okay? Not a pretty sight. Less ugly than it was a year ago, but still not a pretty sight. Yeah, I hear things in the news, and my first instinct is, we've got to get this right. This is an injustice. This is wrong. We've got to slam them. They, you know, that's, what I, that's my natural go-to. Jesus doesn't do that. His go-to is, I'm grieved. I sorrow. I've given them so much, and they cast it all aside. Now there's times that God is angry for repeated sin. If you look in the Old Testament over and over, and you hear about the sin, you're thinking, oh, God's angry all the time. That is not the truth. Not the truth. It goes hundreds of years between his things. You get to see the highlights of it. You get to see what he talks to when he calls the prophets. But over and over, okay, he goes through like generations after generation of the prophets trying to get them back. His intent was always to bring them back into a loving relationship with them. And that should same be our intent as well. So, if they're impenitent, that means they're not repentant. That's what their impenitent means. Then we, we're all called to be daily penitent. That means repentant. That means humble. That means recognizing our sin, seeing the need. And that's the heart that we have, even in reconciling. So, that's what I'm going to go through next about some of the guidelines we need to have when we're hesitant to reconcile. So I first told you about the cautions. I told you about the character of the individual who needs to repent. Okay? Paul knew that within the church. But now when somebody is, is, is intent, we also have to examine within ourselves what's stopping us when there's a sincere repentance. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24 Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So it's pretty obvious that Jesus is saying, you need to reconcile. Okay? Now, again, everything I said before is still valid. It doesn't mean you abandon reason. It doesn't mean that you, you don't have any gu- guidelines. It means that your heart attitude has to be right, that if they're doing it, you're open, that you're not the stumbling block. So one of the things we have to be is first, is we have to be honest about our motives. Do we really want to please God, or do we want to get revenge? Yeah, I'm not going to reconcile with you, because I gotta get, you got to get your comeuppance. you got to pay. Then we can reconcile. Then maybe I'm open. Okay. So what's our motives? Okay? You know, Joseph didn't do that. He was thrown in, cast aside, you know, 12 years in prison. That's a pretty heavy price to pay because the favorite son, suddenly 12 years in prison for something he really didn't do wrong. He was following his father's wishes. Counting on his brothers, but following his father's wishes. And he goes 12 years in prison because of that. You could say, hey, I'm going to put you in prison for 12 years. He didn't do that that long, did he? What he put in prison for a while until the brothers came back down? Simeon? Okay. He was down until they visited. He wouldn't have been down very long if they went back up and came back down, but um, Jacob wasn't willing to do that. What's the other part? We also have to be humble in our attitude. When somebody offends me, it's hard for me not to get proud. They did me wrong. Not to be self-righteous 
like I'm the weak party. They have to do that. And that's not what God says. God says be humble. And so Jesus was humble. When, when we've done wrong with Jesus, he's humbly calling us to him. We need to be prayerful. Luke 6, 28. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Spitefully use you. How many of us pray for somebody who spitefully used us? Yeah, that's a hard one for me. I can pray for somebody who dismissed me, maybe said a bad word, cut me off in traffic. You know, there are certain things I pray, but for Spitefully used you. That means they did it to you. Made your life misery. Caused grief. And he says to pray for that. That's what he's asking us. That's the opportunity is really being at the heart of humility. And praying not like, God, fix them. That's not the prayer we're talking about. Make them better. Help them not to do that anymore. That's not what we're talking about. It's, God, have mercy on them. Those who've done, who know the mercy prayer, know what I'm talking about. Have mercy. Have mercy. Help them. Well, I don't know what's going on with their life. I don't know what's happening with them. Help them. Bless them instead of me. Wow. Bless them instead of me. I can say bless them alongside of me, but bless them instead of me? That's what Paul did with the Jews. He said, I wish my brothers blessed them. I wish I would give up my salvation for their salvation. That's how much he cared for them, even though they beat him twice with 39 blows. Okay? They stoned him with rocks. He still prayed for them. That's the heart he wants of us. We also have to be willing to admit the ways we might have contributed to the problem. Some things, even though they may have sinned, there are certain things that we may have done that may be a contributing factor. If you have a chance and you're interested, there's a, a guy named um, Ken Sand, S-A-N-D-E. He's a biblical counselor. He um, has a couple of ministries. One of them is on peacemakers. Um, it's based on his book, The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. It says, even if you do not start the dispute, your lack of understanding, careless words, impatience, or failure to respond in a loving manner may have aggravated the situation. When this happens, it's easy to behave as though the other person's sins more than cancel yours, which leaves you with a self-righteous attitude that can retard forgiveness, that can delay it, slow it down. The best way to overcome this tendency is to prayerfully examine your role in the conflict. And he says, then write down everything you have done or failed to do that may have been a factor. So, wow. Will sins against me, and I have to do all this work. Even what I said. Right? That's what I'm using as an example, not that you have. Okay? <laughs> but the idea is, that's a challenge for me. It's just that I need to do my work on that. That's the call that we each of us need to do when somebody sins against us. What did I do to contribute to this? How, did I do something that facilitated that? Of course they're responsible for their behavior. But I'm also responsible for, did I speak a harsh word? Was I dismissive? Was I unloving? Was I callous, uncaring? But just like what Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, we know is, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measuring use, it will be measured back to you. We know this part well. So why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at a plank, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There's another part that we're called to do. And this may take time. Because sometimes when a hurt happens, you know something's wrong and you may not have had a chance to fully process it. You may not have a chance to really deal with it. But we're called to be honest with the offender. 
We're called to say, hey, what's going on? And you may need to say, I've been hurt. I'm not even sure all that's going on with that. And be honest about that. But this is the hard part. And you get to see this with relationships. Women more so with men. Because sometimes women take a longer time to process things. Okay? So I want you to get that. That it may take time. But you need to be honest. Be clear about guidelines for restoration. So, part of the restoration process, you may have to establish some clear guidelines. Being, hey, this is what we're going to do. These are the steps that we're going to go through. What's going to work? This is what's going to need to work. What you need to do, what they need to do. And two, two things to appreciate. Number one, be alert to Satan's schemes. Satan is, as I shared, always trying to create dissension and discord. In Ephesians 4, 26, 27, it, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The principle being is that when we're out of control, when we're focused on ourselves, we allow the enemy to come in. And that's what he speaks. He basically, you were wronged. You're right to be angry. It's their fault. Satan's going to sow seeds to create tension, to make your anger worse. Instead of becoming justified anger, it becomes something that's vengeful. And vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then, in Ephesians 4.29 to 5.2, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the believers, to, to the hearers, not even believers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you are sealed, were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Remember that, Ephesians. We're going to come to a sweet smelling aroma. And the, the last part to understand is the most important thing. Be mindful. God's in control. God has this. God may have used that. That's the thing is those people who give me the hardest time, who create sometimes the most challenges for me, expose my own heart. The things that I'm most frustrated about are the things that God needs to work to deal within me. God may use that. He has permitted certain things. God's in control and He's working things out. Okay? What does God want to glorify? What's the characters to glorify Him? What is the characters He's trying to address within me? Do I get easily frustrated? Do I have a short fuse? Am I focused so much on myself? All the things in play that God's trying to address. And the, oh, the one more thing, you know, just with everything, be realistic. Okay, when we said that they're called to repent and not sin anymore, does that mean they can never make another mistake? No, we're human beings. We'll make a mistake. Look at the heart behind it. Look at the intent. Is their intent showing that they're, they're, they're broken? I screwed up. Broken by it. And that's the judgment call. It's not an easy one to make. Okay, so we need wisdom. Sometimes you need to, to seek counsel to get a sense of, am I seeing this correctly? Are they taking advantage or not? So wisdom seeks counsel. We need to get the, get the sense of that. Okay? Is there a change of attitude? Are they broken by their sin such that they're grieved by it, even though they, they're screwed up? So they may stumble. We're still called to redeem them. But is this a habitual pattern? Are they showing a callousness of their heart? Are they, those are the things to look at to see what's transpiring with them. Don't give up. Reconcile. Don't give up. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 11. We're going to go to the next. For to this end, I also wrote that I may put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. 
So, Paul's basically put to the test. He's basically saying, are you going to, have you learned from something that I've told you? Okay? And he's admonishing them. Do you see? You've rebuked appropriately. You listen. Now, do you, do you forgive? And he talked about what I've already addressed, Satan take advantage, that discord and dissension. So when you get a sense that Paul forgives, he's basically saying the offense happened against you first. And if you forgive, of course, I forgive. Okay, I won't hold it. I don't want you to hold a grudge. I won't hold a grudge. So, the word they use, let Satan take advantage, is a Greek word called pleonecteo. And it means to defraud. When he takes advantage, it's not like he takes advantage like you overcome. He's basically robbing you of what Christ gives us. So Christ has given us peace. The spirit of reconciliation comes from the Holy Spirit. That intent to make peace and be of one accord, that's from the Holy Spirit. When we don't have that, we've been defrauded. We've been cheated. That's what Satan's trying to do, is to cheat us of his device of reconciliation, of being together. So when we don't have that togetherness, we've been cheated by Satan. So, briefly, what was Satan's strategy? His strategy at the sinning man in 1 Corinthians was focus on his lust. He chose to be with his father's wife because of lust. Then, you know, he's sorrowful in, in you get to see, you know, he's, he's hopeless and despairing. That's Satan's. You're useless. You're no good. Look what you've done. Nobody can forgive you. If we ever hear that voice, nobody can forgive us, that's a lie from the pits of hell. If we ever hear that nobody can forgive us, that's from the devil himself. Okay? What was his strategy against the church in 1 Corinthians? First is to tolerate the evil. It's no big deal. You know, we're all sinners. At least he's coming to church. That's a good thing. Maybe he'll hear the message, and maybe over time he'll come under the conviction. Okay? And the other part would be, then they go to the opposite end, where they could be severe in their punishment. That's it. He's out of here. We're never taking him back. He's wicked. He's evil. And they cast him out. Both extremes. Either toleration or complete rejection. And the last thing, Satan's strategy against Paul was to stress him out. Stress Paul out. Look at this. This church that I spent all this time with, that I cared for, I tried to instruct, I'm going to... Look, Paul. Look what you did, what you planted. It wasn't really very good. Look, they were not taking anything you said. Look what they tolerate. How did you teach her? What can I teach her you? Look what they're doing. It's a burden we all have. When somebody does something wrong with the church, like, you're like... We, those who, who've done some teaching, we have to give an account. Are we going to be held accountable for, you know, somebody's actions? That's how Satan can attack us. So, we have to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us discernment. How is Satan doing it? And we know Satan is always going to twist Scripture. He's always going to take away the glory from God, steal it from himself. doesn't have the heart of Christ. Look for how the Spirit communicates. Look at the love that he communicates. Look at the forgiveness. As we have been forgiven, we are to forgive. Now, lastly, let's move on to, we have two more sections of the verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12. I'm going to go to half of 16, so 16a, I'll call it. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit. Because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Wow. And to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. So Paul says, look, a door was open. I mention that because I think it's important for us to understand. God's going to open doors in our life too. He's going to open doors for ministry. Okay? 
my struggle sometimes is I'm not sure, is this the Lord or not, Lord? So I kind of have to wait for the door to be open a couple of times. God's wanting us to be more sense of spirit. So if he opens the door, we walk through that. Trusting this provision. Okay? And sometimes you may have to seek counsel. Okay? But you also realize Paul's heart was he didn't want to do it alone. He realized he needed somebody there. He, had, he wanted Titus. He was looking for Titus. And his heart of ministry is always somebody that includes others. And he uses this idea of the triumphal profession, the triumph of Christ. If you've seen any of the old movies and you've seen the old Roman legions when they've come up from battle, just like when they actually conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD, they brought back actually the uh, articles from the temple, like the menorah and all the articles, and they brought them in procession. They had this huge thing and a huge um, 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 this, this parade. Okay, and all the people who watch it. Like we have parades when the when the president comes by or any noted dignitary or when you you know, just like actually when you win a when you win a, a sporting event, you know, if you get to see like the now the you know, the Vegas Knights won the Stanley Cup and you may not care, but in Las Vegas they you're gonna have a parade and they'll go through carrying the Stanley Cup and they'll be in triumphal procession. Okay? And Paul's saying he we are gonna be led in triumphal procession, Christ. There will be triumph. God, Jesus coming back. When he comes back, he's going to come as a victor. When we go to the wedding feast, we'll be as a victorious because of what Christ did. And we'll get to go along. He's the leader. He has it. But we get to proceed alongside with him as those who've been used by him in his army in the battle. So, he uses the idea of fragrance. So God's using fragrance. There's something sweet. When you smell something that's good, there's a sweetness about it. And we talked about how it literally gets deep in your brain, evokes memories of the past. And what the use of the word fragrance, Meyer says, a sweet savor of Christ. It does not consist so much in what we do, but in our manner of doing it. Not so much in our words or deeds as in an indefinable sweetness tenderness, courtesy, unselfishness, and desire to please others to their edification. It is the breath and fragrance of a life hidden with Christ in God and deriving its aroma from fellowship with Him. Wrap the habits of your soul in the sweet lavender of your Lord's character. That's the kind of sweetness. When you have somebody who has that sweetness of spirit and they come in the room and they change the whole atmosphere of the space, because they just project that sweetness, the sweetness of Christ. Now, you have to realize that sweetness is attractive and desirable to those who are of Christ. For them, you come into the room, you're giving life. So when we have it here, when we're in worship, and you get the aroma of worship, when I look around and I see everybody worshiping intent, it energizes us. My worship energizes you. Your worship energizes me. It becomes something that we do corporately. There's a sweet aroma. Okay, God meets us and comes down because of that sweetness of that spirit. But when somebody doesn't know Jesus, it becomes conviction. It becomes judgment. And for them, it's like death, like carrion. Like... And look at John chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, is condemned already because not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who clearly, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they may have been done in God. So Clark says the same happens to present day to those who receive and to those who reject the gospel. Means of salvation, 
for the former, those who receive it, and it's the means of destruction for the later, for the latter. For they're not, for they are not only not saved because they do not re- believe the gospel, because, but they're condemned because they reject it. This is the challenge we have to get. People, it's not because they don't believe. It's because they, the natural man rejects the gospel. Only by the Holy Spirit does it change the heart through God's grace. doesn't mean don't preach it, but the natural man in himself will seek darkness. That's the sin that we got from Adam. That's but also in our own nature. None seeks righteousness, not one. None of us seek it. But God in His grace has brought us to Him. So finishing off 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 16b to 17. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So, Paul acknowledges none of us are sufficient in ourselves. I'm not here because of my testimony that I'm a great guy. I'm here because of what Christ has done in me. Everything that he points to continually always points to Christ. All his sufficiency is from Christ. Even though he planted the church at Corinth, even though he's done so much for the kingdom, look how much of our New Testament is from Paul. He still points to Christ. He doesn't take the credit for himself. But the other part is he also lets them know that he's not what he's saying is not to be lightly taken or dismissed. He's not just uh, peddling the word. He's not just dismissing or watering it down. He's not trying to sell it. Okay? He is communicating what he sincerely believes. That's what he says, sincerely believes that God has spoken through him. And the sincere word is a Greek word that's called elekrinia, which means somebody who is pure and transparent. Okay, so that word of that sincerity is something that's pure and transparent. Because look, I'm just a conduit. God's speaking, not because I'm special, but because He's special. But these are the words He's spoken through me for your benefit. Such should be our attitude as well. And that's what He's saying is, as we have Christ in us, it becomes something sweet, and God will use us to bring others to Him for those that He's reaching, that the Spirit's been speaking to. So every word that Paul spoke... He spoke in the sight of God. Every word that he spoke, he spoke in the sight of God. I want you to get that. That's the challenge for us. Every word that we speak, we speak in the sight of God. We'll have to give an account. He's ready to, because he knows his life is poured out for Christ. We have two minutes left. Guys, have any questions?